welcome to the Pragmatic Live podcast series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management and marketing professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Calajaris, Vice President of Marketing at Pragmatic Marketing, and your host for this episode. Today, we are joined by Mark Yeager, co-founder of Yeager Marketing, an agency focused specifically on helping technology organizations develop winning marketing programs. Welcome, Mark. Thanks, Rebecca. Great to be talking with you. All right, to start, Mark, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? Uh, so I have been in technology marketing for a long period of time, for about 25 years, with a bunch of different companies. Um, probably the most notable one was Computer Associates, where I was director of service marketing uh, for that organization, uh, but also in different sized organizations, startups and kind of mid-sized ones, uh, but always with the focus of a lot of customer acquisition and product positioning and that sort of focus. So we did a lot of work with uh, talking with personas and, and kind of developing you know, who they are, what makes them tick, and I've rolled a lot of that experience into our agency to be able to get a good picture of who our customers service and, 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 you know, what are the most meaningful parts of what they do and helping to bring that into their communications and such. So our focus, as it relates to your audience, is we do a lot of work with product managers and product marketers as it relates to uh, content and sales tools they might need, as well as product rollouts and launches. Excellent. All right. So in all of those roles and through all of those years, I just made you sound like you're 200, which I know you're not. (laughs) In all of that time, Mark, how many persona interviews would you say you've done? Oh, boy. I'm definitely in the 500 plus category, I would say, by now. Yeah. It's been quite a few. Um, But, you know, it's, it's an art and a science. And, you know, it, I think of it as kind of a craft. You have to do it over and over again if you're looking to continuously improve it. Your questions get better and you get better at listening and better at steering the conversation the way that the customer wants to go and, and adhering to you know what they want to give you. And it, it's, it's fun. So it's always challenging and always something you can improve. Excellent. All right. So I bet that through all of those interviews, you've learned a lot. And, and actually, you wrote a piece for us not too long ago about the nine key lessons you learned through those interviews. That's right. Yeah, and I know personally, I'm always looking for ways to improve my market interviews and, and build better, more usable personas. And I'm positive our audience is too. So let's start by walking through those sort of nine key lessons that you learned. The first of which uh, was get help scheduling interviews. Tell me more about that. Well, you know... <laughs> It's really difficult and time-consuming to get people on the phone these days. I mean, most uh, most people want to chat with you versus talk with you, and there's a lot of email correspondence, but you're not going to get the depth of information you need from emails or for asking or sending over a questionnaire. You need to let the people talk. And to do that, to capture people's time on the phone, literally, if your interview is going to be 15 to 20 minutes, sometimes as long as 30 minutes, I mean, you're going to spend about an hour and a half getting that person scheduled. So I always use uh, uh, someone else to help me do that piece. We do it on behalf of clients and I ask the client to schedule the interviews for me because they have the relationship. It's usually who has the best relationship can help you secure that appointment quickest the most effectively. If you're reaching out to schedule it, sometimes you'll run into situations where they won't uh, immediately recognize who you are and that can kind of delay that process as well. So it's best to kind of work with the person who's got the best relationship with them and try to coordinate it that way. 
One of the interesting ideas you had in the um, the article, which really spoke to me, was that even if it's someone where you may know them best, you can reach out and then you can pass it off for someone else to do the, the scheduling. So you do the introduction. You say, hey, this is what I want to do. They say, yes. You said, great. Let's work with you and Bob can go figure it out. And that, that was powerful to me because, again, you know, we're trying to do just like we teach and just like you do market visits all the time. And, and you do kind of end up pushing them off because of the administrative overhead. Yeah, that's, that's true. And, you know, the other thing is, is that it can be unclear. It, the point you made there is, is really important. We'll talk about it in a, in a minute here, but they have to also know that when you're talking to them, that you're removed from the process and you don't have a sales role. And we'll talk about that, but you know, having someone else, uh, coordinate that for you kind of makes it feel like you're a little bit removed from the mm. relationship, but it sets up for more genuine conversation. Excellent. All right. Tip number two, be clear about what you are doing and how long it will take. Right. So this is kind of what we just talked about. So the thing that you need to be sensitive to is that when people are going to give you feedback, whether it be about your product or about how they buy or any of those sorts of things that you might want to gather from a, a persona type of interview, they're going to want to give you that feedback. Most people do, but they don't want to feel sold to. So if they have any inkling of a perception that you're a salesperson and that you're going to somehow be trying to gather information that will then be turned into a sales opportunity, they are not going to take that interview because it's uncomfortable. You know, they've already been through a sales process. They've already bought or they haven't bought. And at this point, your chances of rebounding them as that third person are, are, are terrible. So don't even approach these calls in that way whatsoever. What I typically will tell them is that my purpose is not to sell you anything. And I even add on it because we work as an agency on behalf of technology companies. I say, the people that hired me, if, if I tried to sell for them, they'd fire me immediately. Um, my goal is just to understand the situation. And if you'd be willing to share your perspective on how the sales process worked for you or about the product or whatever, I'd be grateful. And that is usually enough. Um, but the other thing you have to be sensitive to is the time factor. Ask for about 15 minutes. You can really get a ton of information in 15 minutes. But uh, if it takes a little bit longer, usually the customer or whoever it is that you're, you're interviewing is giving you that time. But if you ask for 15, that feels a lot more, something that, that they're going to be a lot more likely to give you than 30 minutes or 40. Excellent. Good advice. So tip number three, realize that you don't need tons of interviews to get directional guidance. Yeah, this is, this is kind of a, a common misperception. You know, the truth is that you kind of have to look at this in, in, as research, right? So there's qualitative and quantitative type of research. And qualitative is kind of that directional research that you get just there. It's trying to give you a kind of directional of what's happening. And then the quantitative is more like surveys and follow-up that's more um, statistically significant type of data. The reality is, is that I've done a lot of both of those types of projects where we've done something qualitative and, and gotten some insights and then validated them. And you can do that um, if, you, if, you're, if you're doing a project where you need to be 100% correct and it's dang important, you should do qualitative type of research and back it up with a quantitative to know that you're right. But if you're looking for insights, directional information, um, most often, and I mean probably 95% of the time, your qualitative work 
is just going to be echoed in the quantitative work. So really, what you're going to find is if you had, you know, in the neighborhood of 10 to 15 people to talk to on a given topic, you're in a really good place. That's enough people to talk to. You don't necessarily need to have 25, 30 people. And you don't always have to back that up with quantitative type of research like surveys or questionnaires and such. Interesting. So one of the um, the things I've always found is that you kind of know the exact number of interviews you might need uh, varies, but you know when you're getting there because you really hear a lot of repetition, right? Exactly, right. It's when you start hearing the themes over and over mm-hmm. again, and when you almost can ask a question where you hear them on the other end one way or another saying, oh, yeah, that's actually really right. right. And you almost are developing a, a kindred spirit type of relationship with them because you understand something about them that's so important. Um, yeah, it's when you're hearing the themes over and over again that we know you're getting to a really good place. So what about if through these interviews, if you're, if you're seeing that maybe you're uncovering a new persona? So our, how do you separate what is a net new persona from just a, a flavor of an existing persona? You know, it... it it, it really depends on how radically different that persona is. I mean, most people, it, I, it depends on your goal too. If you're trying to determine you know, something about the buying process, you're looking for the commonalities in the buying process in terms of you know, what they do. And if they do something radically different than others and there's a bunch of them that do things radically different, um, then you probably have a different persona in some way or another because you're going to spend money differently. So it really comes down to their behaviors uh, as it relates to what's important to you, what you're gauging, and if there's money behind the difference in those behaviors, if that makes sense. No, that makes a lot of sense because when we talk about user personas, you know, we talk about do they have the same problems? And mm. while that's true with buyers, I think to your point, there's a subset of those, however we want to do, where they may have the same problems, but they're their um, habits, interactions, where you could find them are so drastically different that you have to think of those as, as separate groups. Exactly. Exactly. Dead on. All right. So we've talked about a little bit, you touched on qualitative versus quantitative, but point number four also talks about that. No, the qualitative results are usually in line with quantitative. I mean, so I referenced there that I've done 500 or so of these types of interviews. I'd say a good 20, 30% of them we backed up with data. And I think maybe once or twice in those situations did we find something that was different in the, in the qualitative and quantitative work. So it's it directionally is usually pretty spot on. As long as, like I said, I mean, a minimum number of people that you'd, you'd want to interview for, for anything would probably be about six. But I try to keep it in a 10 to 15 type of ratio. And it, usually in there is where you're going to start hearing the commonalities of, you know, what the behaviors are that these people are doing that you want to measure. So that one was interesting to me and it was, it was a bit of a surprise versus things we hear from some. And I think maybe part of your experience here is also because you're a third party, right? So you Mm -hmm. come with less bias and you also give less bias back. So if you presented your findings to me, um, there's a little bit best of a, of a lean or a bias that you may have given that. If I was in a big company and I went out and talked to 10 people and I got very similar stories, I don't know that I would feel comfortable standing in front of the execs and saying this is a, a, a big enough proven out problem. And part of that's just the, you know, was I maybe in one geography, maybe I was in one spot, but that would make me a little nervous. I mean, I understand what you're saying that, um, 
you'll find more often than not you prove yourself out. But I think it can be a valuable exercise uh, to show that those individual anecdotes then actually do prove out to be data. Right. Yeah. I, I don't discourage you from backing up at any time when you feel backing up your research with something quantitative or increasing your numbers. If your deci- the decision you're making is important enough, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to do these for a variety of reasons. And some of them are going to be mission critical. In those circumstances, yeah, you want to back it up because you need to be right. You can't make a, a big investment uh, by not having a good enough data sample. But if you're looking for trends, directional information, you know, what's, what's the pulse of, of what's happening with either with our product or with the market or with how buying is working, the qualitative approach uh, and a lesser number will get you there. I think that's a really good point, Mark, because uh, it's definitely a risk versus reward question, right? If I'm trying to figure out whether or not to try a new market or change a little message, that's one thing. If I'm um, trying to decide what to build and the cost of fixing it once I'm built is uh-huh. huge, right? Yes. That's yes. super different. But I, but I yes. think to your point too, though, that sometimes it's important to measure that risk for reward because sometimes we can get to the point where I don't have perfect data yet. I don't have perfect data yet. And so I'm just sort of paralyzed. And so finding that balance, I think is something that we can all uh, really think about and make sure that we're getting enough data, but not so much that we're not moving forward and we're getting the data when the data is most valuable to us. Yeah. And I want to be clear about something too. What I'm talking about is these are, when I talk about 10 to 15, these are the conversations that you actually have. You may have a circumstance where you're reaching out to 25, right? Right. And you net 15. Realize you want to have that many substantive conversations. That's where you need to be. All right. Tip number five. Create a list of questions, but be ready to stray from it. Yeah, you know, there are certain things you're really going to want to find out. So you categorically want to frame the conversation in a way that's going to address everything that you need to cover. So, for example, uh, if you're trying to determine how people are buying from you, you're going to want to know where they search for solutions, how they search, if they were Googling, you know, what terms are they using. You're looking for that sort of stuff, right? And and that's stuff that you're going to need to have. But the folks that are on the line with you, the people that you're talking to either in person or that you're, you're on the phone with, they're going to take the conversation where they want to take it. They got on the phone with you because they wanted to share something. And it's important that you let them share it because there's insight in what they want to give you. You have to take it though. You have to be willing to listen for what it is they're saying and you know, what was important to them. Cause some of what they're saying, it's almost a little bit like therapy in some ways. Some of what they want to tell you may not be something they've articulated before. So you have to be ready to will to listen Ask really good questions and and let them steer the conversation, but then bring them back to the things that you absolutely know you need to hear. And it's these little bits of strayed insight that are super important because you're going to find – that's where you're going to find really big kind of insights. And I'll give you a quick example if you don't mind, Rebecca. So I I was working for a – you know, I've I've used this method for a long time. I was working for a web conferencing company. We did this approach and we were competing with really large web conferencing providers. Think WebEx or Microsoft Live Meeting, those sorts of technologies. I was working for a small technology company that provided web conferencing. Competing with these guys, they had tremendous amount of features our competitors did that we did not have. So we had to figure out a way, you know, how do we determine what customers think are the most important features? So we did a process of persona development and did interviews. 
And as we asked questions about, you know, there were about 150 different features that our competitors have that we had 20 really strong ones. And we were trying to discern, are our strong ones strong enough? Are the ones we don't have important? So we were going through this process of determining which ones were, were most important. So we'll build those first. And it was a mixed bag. We weren't getting great insights. But the interesting thing was at the end of almost every call, the people that we were talking to said, yeah, but yeah, I do hate meetings. And it was kind of the last thing they said, right? So because we were tuned in to hearing that and we wanted to explore that, we said, well, what do you mean by that? And they said the common things that people had problems with meetings with it. People wouldn't show up. Um, you know, no one takes notes. It's not productive. And what we did is we started to hear enough of that and we tuned in and listened to it because even though it was off script, we started to build features that addressed meeting problems, not necessarily web conferencing solutions that had been built before. So we started to build things like the conference hound where it was designed to get people into meetings. It would hit your cell phone or your IM and whatever it got you on would bring you into the web meeting. We did something called the, the meeting scheduler and the meeting planner and it would give action items and it would go right into their task uh, programs after the meeting. We built a meeting productivity tool, something we never would have thought to do if we hadn't been willing to listen to what wasn't on the script. So it's kind of an important insight uh, to be thinking about, you know, don't get so mired in the idea that you need to capture what you need to capture. Be willing to listen because there's, there's gold in what goes off script. Right. Because those are the topics they, they brought on themselves, right? They were important enough to bubble up even without you searching for it. So I think that's great. That's right. That's right. But that being said, you got to come with some, some setup questions. What are some of your favorite questions? Oh, geez. I have a lot of them. You know, most of, of the work that we do is around uh, helping people understand how they're going to launch their products, how, you know, how people find solutions, how you, how you communicate to them, where you reach them. So we ask a lot of types of probing questions that go into, you know, when you have a problem, how do you solve it? And kind of that, you know, the, the nuances of that. What's the first thing you do? We try to get them to systematically go through that as completely as possible. Uh, and I'll tell you, and just a little you know, off the, the topic, but I will tell you that uh, overwhelmingly, and even more and more, and it's just a trend that I'm seeing more and more of, people go to their networks to make decisions more and more and more. So if you're not using some kind of reference program or some kind of reference, uh, something that incents in your customers to share uh, their experience with others, you're missing the boat in a big way because more and more that's the number one place that people will go to when they're making any decision. They'll go to a group of their peers or they're looking for others who've had similar uh, experiences and looking for provider names. Uh, but you know, what I'll tell you is that um, uh, one of the big questions I ask at the end, which is always a winner, is what didn't I ask you that I should have asked you? And it goes back to what we talked about before, Rebecca, which is the people on the phone or that you're talking to in person took the meeting with you because they wanted to share something. And you need to give them the opportunity to say what that is. And sometimes we forget that, right? So, but when you say, what didn't I ask you that I should have asked you, immediately they're going to open up and tell you something that they hadn't told you, that they came to the conversation and wanted to tell you. And when they tell you that, I ask that, that question typically at about the 12-minute mark. And most of the time, that's when my conversations go past 30 minutes. 
because mm. you get you get the nut of what's important when you go a little bit off script and, and enable them to really open up to you. Great. And as I, I know that you're also going to be providing our listeners with um, a download that they can get from the description area of the podcast where they can download some of your favorite questions. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, we, we put together kind of a best practices doc uh, that has a bunch of questions for you, but also some tips some things that we might not have talked about here that are kind of helpful in, in, in doing a process like this. Awesome. All right. Number six, key lesson learned. Record interviews. Don't try to take notes. Yeah, you, you can think that um, when you're talking with, with somebody that you're catching it all. And you're not. It's almost impossible to try to take notes on something that someone is telling you and to catch all the nuances of the conversation. People have inflection in their voice. People say things differently. Every single time after I do an interview, when I go back and listen to it, I have missed something. There's some aspect, something that was said, some little nugget that I didn't catch um, that I hear in the recording. Mm. And I'm not even taking notes because I know I've got the recording. So it's, it's incredibly valuable to record these things. Now, what I'll tell you is that a lot of times people will have a little hesitancy about being recorded. You have to be really, really clear and you have to be incredibly, you know, honest about mm. that you are only using this for your use. A lot of, a lot of people you talk to will say, I don't want this to be heard by the client or I don't want others to hear it. I don't want my salesperson to hear it. I don't want you have to respect that. Mm. Um, uh, in circumstances where I can, I will ask, can I use your recording to share with with my group? And a lot of times they'll say yes, and sometimes they'll say no. But either way, you you will not capture it all the first time around. There is there's gonna be nuggets, there's gonna be things that you will hear the second time that are gonna be critically important for you. Do you record even when you do uh, live interviews? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And when I do it live, I bring my video recorder. Oh. Because again, nuances, right? So even, even as there's uh, inflection changes in your voice, there's facial expressions that communicate. And they can be huge. And they could change the meaning of something that you just heard. Mm. So all of that, any bit of data, I'm a data guy, right? So any bit of data you can capture, you want to get it. I just As soon as you said you'd bring your camera, I thought, oh my gosh, I'd have to, you know, get dressed up. <laughs> It's like a whole nother level of stress. I was like, oh. Again, you have to be, you got to be super clear about why it's there. No one's going to see this. It's totally, this is very casual. I have had a couple of times where I've had to shut off the video because I felt like I wasn't getting uh, they were, mm. enough. Yeah, they were holding back. I mean, sometimes that happens. And, and again, you're there to, to listen. Um, so if they're not sharing with you, you're not getting what you're supposed to be getting. So, you know, if, if it becomes a, a, a barrier, then you have to address it. But for the most part, uh, people kind of forget it's even happening. Great. All right. Key lesson number seven, frame your questions in a manner most likely to produce usable results. Okay. So I don't know if any of you have had the experience of developing personas before, and they end up as these pictures on the wall of people uh, and, you know, their personal attributes, but nothing much happens with them from there. Uh, I've seen a lot of that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the point of doing persona work is to understand the behaviors of people in a manner that helps you drive your business. 
So what you need to be thinking about is what's the end result that we want from this? What are we trying to get out of it? If we're trying to determine which features we're going for, be really clear about how you're going to capture the information about the features and, you know, and, and, you know, where those features are going to reside and how people will use them. If you're doing, you know, trying to understand how people buy, make sure you ask very pointed questions that are going to help drive your marketing plan, right? So you're asking them, uh, well, uh, when you search on Google, which most of them do, we're looking for vendors, uh, what terms do you use? I mean, you're trying to build, is it a long tail strategy we're doing here? Is it a keyword? What are we doing? Uh, when they say things like, uh, you, you need to be fishing for things like, uh, you know, how do you make decisions? How do you find, do you go to a network? Do you go to shows? Do you read magazines? Get specific in you know, the, the, the aspects that are going to help you derive a program uh, or a list of features that need to be built. Don't just go open-ended in the, in, the, in the idea of we're just going to paint a really good picture of this person, who this person is. Get to the behaviors they do that are important to you. Excellent. And I, I thought that was a, another really valuable uh, point because you want to ask open-ended questions. You want to do all that. So we talked about but when you know what you're trying to uncover, try and work backwards from there. Same idea that you do when you build a survey, right? In the survey, what am I trying to get them to say? What results am I trying to look at? And building it backwards and spending that amount of time thinking of your questions up front, I, it could really pay dividends in what you end up with being able to use later. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and the key there is that you have to have the end goal in mind, just as you said. You've got to realize that at the end of the day, I'm going to write a plan that we're going to spend money against mm -hmm. um, for this. So I want to be sure that I have asked as as clear and as poignant questions as I possibly can. That when I when I make those decisions, I know for sure I got it right. Excellent. All right. Question number eight. Ask questions, or I guess this is point number eight. Ask questions, acknowledging that you don't know what you don't know. So we kind of talked about this mm -hmm. a little bit, and, and I used that, that open question, what didn't I ask you that I should have asked you, But which, by the way, I probably overused. The people that, that work with me here, we've got a, a team, <laughs> and they, they roll their eyes continuously when I use it, because it pops up in interviews, it pops up, it's everywhere, right? Get you a <laughs> t-shirt. <laughs> but I'll, I'll tell you for sure that um, a lot of times, in these types of situations, you're exploring. Um, you, you may come to the table with a preset of, of notions, preset of ideas of what people are going to say, um, but you have to be realizing that you're going to hear a whole slew of things that you don't understand, including new categories of things that you don't understand. Um, so be sensitive to that. Um, ask, don't assume that you understand exactly what the person you're interviewing is saying. They may use a term. That means something to you that you may be institutionalized to believe means one thing, but to them means something completely else. So you have to be really clear uh, about understanding that you're going into uh, you're going into a cave and you don't know what you're going to see. So just be willing to look around a lot and 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 absorb that there's going to be things in there that you did not expect. 
Wow. And just the, uh, the validating the language means what you think it means, I think is powerful. I think that's powerful even internally when we're having conversations. We may sound like we really agree, but it's because we're using the same word to mean two different things. And um, yeah. I think it's really important to dig on that, right? When they say, it, using my own world, right? If they say market-driven, do they mean market-driven the way we do? Or do they yep. mean customer-driven or something else? But really digging into that is, is uh, it can be easy to try and sum it all up in two words and think those two words mean the same thing to everybody. But validating that's an important step. Yeah, and you know, there's a, there's a propensity when you hear words that you know to be excited because you're like, oh yeah, we've been right. thinking that all around. We, we need to be market-driven. You have to ask, well, when you say market-driven, what does that mean to you? And drill into the aspects of that that are important uh, because you're right. It, it's exactly that. And, and especially in technology, oh my gosh, especially in technology, even acronyms oh, yeah. uh, can mean something completely different, right? So you have to slow it down and, and um, you know, when you're talking with someone, you want them to understand that you understand, but just be clear in your line of questioning that you're say when they say a term that could have you know ambiguous meanings to it, be clear about listen. I, this could mean this. What you've just said could mean a few things to different people. How would you, what does it mean to you? Um, that sort of of questioning is incredibly important for. Uh, if you want to avoid getting data that you think is spot on that may not be aligned at all. Excellent. All right. So your ninth and final key lesson learned uh, is all about what you do right at the very end of the interview. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, so when you finish the interview, you need to thank this person for sharing their time and their help and guidance. I mean, most of the people you're going to talk to, um, regardless of what you're doing it for, uh, the one thing that they don't have a lot of is time, as, as none of us do, right? So be very gracious about that because they've given you a pretty good gift, the gift of, of time, which is the one thing that I think is the most important in the world. But also ask them for the permission to follow up. Because again, like I said with the recordings, you may hear something that you didn't expect to hear and you didn't hear the first time. And you may need to probe on that again because that might be one of the insights that, you know, is a, is a huge win for you. So ask for the permission to follow up at the end of the call in case there's anything else uh, that you might have missed. I've never had anyone say no to that. I always find it fascinating at the end of interviews, too, because I so often get from the, the person I interviewed was the, gosh, I hope this was helpful for you. <laughs> and I, like, I get that question all the time and I just think, wow, that I mean, was immensely helpful, but so you're going to make sure they know that, but also the fact that they wanted it to be right, that they yes. gave up their time in hopes that it helps me is always, it always blows my mind. Yeah. It, it's fantastic. Right. Because they, they do come with something that they want to tell you, but at the end of the day, I mean, they, they want good experiences. They want you to have good experiences with others. So th they're going to want to help you. I've never had anyone. I have had a couple circumstances where I had someone who was really angry mm. about their experience mm. um, and wanted to just get that point out. So I acted more like a customer service uh, right. representative in that situation and just kind of heard it out. But, uh, you know, there's insight in everything. And even if you're hearing repetitive things, that's more data. Yep. So all of it is valuable. And, and be sensitive to that. They've given you tremendous value just by getting on the phone with you. 
All right. So, Mark, we've spent all this time. We've got great information about personas. How do we turn it into value? Or is that a big topic and we should talk about it another day? <laughs> well, let me, let me give you some, some ideas here. And I, I kind of alluded to it before. So you have to be able to derive meaning from the data you've collected, right? And I'll, I'll, I'll use a couple of um, circumstances here. So let's say that uh, we do a lot of this kind of work where we try to figure out how people buy and why people buy. And it, it relates to um, a lot to launches and rollouts and, and sales enablement stuff that we do. Make sure that uh, what you're trying to net out of this is a plan. It's always a plan for us. It's a marketing plan usually uh, that nets out of these conversations for us. So you need to be able to drive, you know, what's the actionable item out of what they've told me. Uh, so they may say to you when you ask them things like, uh, well, how do you find solutions? Where, how do you solve problems? What do you go to do when you solve this problem? Think back to when you first tried to solve it and what happened. Can you describe that to me? They may say things like, well, I went to a group of peers or, uh, you know, I don't really go to trade shows, but, you know, I, I get a lot of information sent to me. Um, stuff like that should be derived into something else. So if they don't go to trade shows, they don't leave the office, you should be doing webinars for them. Ask, that's, that's a good follow-up question for that person. How do you, so you say you get information sent to you. What type of information is that? Uh, if they say things like, um, well, you know, when we were looking for vendors, um, we really wasn't clear what the, who the market leaders were or who to, who to find, or that's a thought leadership opportunity. Your custom, your, your, your company should be writing social, uh, content that talks about what it takes to get, to find a good vendor. You know, what are the category categories? What are the ways you evaluate vendors? I mean, you have to be able to turn what you hear into insights, right? And a lot of that comes from experience with, 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 with this kind of stuff, but also just from listening and probing and probing and probing. So when they give you an ambiguous answer, like, well, I just get information sent to me, drill into that. Well, what gets sent to you? How does it get sent to you? And realize there's a vehicle that's being used to reach that person. You want to be uh, aligned to what that vehicle is. Right. So it's really to get the best insights, you have to be willing to drive the questions a level deeper each time. Don't accept something as uh, a nebulous answer. Don't accept a um, something that's anywhere ambiguous like, well, we just don't or uh, I get a lot of stuff sent to me. You got to probe. That's what's going to get you actionable information that you know is going to be worth the investment that you put into this to, to, to get something good. Excellent. All right. So we've talked about lots of different things today. Um, but if you were to pick two things that you wanted people to do differently tomorrow based on what we talked about today, what would that be? Uh, so first of all, I think people should do more of this because we, I can tell you as technology marketers, if you look at the statistics, um, of how successful they are, uh, in terms of the programs they roll out and, and, um, and such. And, you know, something like 40% of them ha even have confidence in, in the stuff that they do. Uh, and, you know, uh, I think it's somewhere in the 60% ratio, uh, actually are able to track most of what they do. So there's a lot of guessing and we do that a lot. We, we think we know the customers. We think we know 
what makes people tick? Oh, we already know who buys from us and why they buy. You don't always know. Or you may be missing an opportunity. There may be something that they don't normally say that you're going to get out of you. So the first thing I would say is be data-driven. I mean, it, it's so incredibly important. And, and I think sometimes we skip that step. So that's, that's kind of the first thing. And the second thing is what we talked about last. If you're going to do this process, it's got to result in something that you're going to have huge confidence in. And it's going to be actionable. Don't just do this to paint a picture because it's not going to add value to you. Find exactly what your output is supposed to be and gear your program back from that. Re-engineer it, reverse engineer it from where you need to be. Um, and, and I think that's a, it's a point that gets lost, right? Um, for some reason or another, we, we tend to think we're going to learn a whole bunch about our buyers. Um, we're going to paint these great pictures of them, but we, we don't get actionable. And, and at the end of the day, I mean, anything you do has to have a return on it in some way or, or, or form. So, so be sensitive to that. Be aware that your time is hugely valuable and, and engineer these things to be incredibly meaningful for you. All right. Thank you so much for joining me, Mark. It was a pleasure to have you on today, and I hope you'll join us again. Oh, I'd love to. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Now, don't forget, everybody, check the description underneath the podcast, and you can download the best practices and tip that Mark's putting together. Um, that does it for today's episode. So thanks for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career. 